Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a microcollege in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head on. Welcome to MicroCollege. Today on the podcast, we are honored to have Steve Lawless. Uh, locals in the Viroqua area will, will know Steve. Um, he is the, the magician behind the Mary, Mary Green Marvel, the proprietor of Sit and Pretty Farms. Um, he has been a lifelong educator, teacher at many different levels, different formats and settings. Um, this summer, he's been a partner with Thoreau College and the Driftless Folk School and many other local organizations um, through the pizza nights he staged at Sit and Pretty Farm outside of Viroqua. Um, and today we're, we're here to talk to him about the Mary Green Marble and, and really the, the, the approach of uh, uh, adventure education and service education um, and travel on a bus. The, the Mary Green Marvel is a 40-foot sleeper coach adventure bus, which Steve describes as a rolling community of adventure and service. It takes trips all over the country, college students, younger people, um, and yeah, it's really it's a marvelous project. Thank you for joining us today, Steve. Good to be here, Jacob. Steve, here on, uh, on the podcast, we like to begin by asking people to, to reflect a bit on their own young adulthood. Um, so maybe could you tell us where where you were around 20 years old? What were you doing? Uh, who were you with? And, and what was what stands out about that period in your life? Oh, my, that's a stretch. 20 years old, I was uh, just emerging from the tall corn country of central Iowa. I grew up on a farm in central Iowa. It was um, a family farm that had been in the family for over 150 years, and uh, I always joke that I'm uh, at six foot seven. I was tall enough to get above the corn and find my way out. <laughs> uh, at 20 years old, I was probably uh, in between semesters in college, and uh, I was still going back home for summers and working in uh, the detasseling crews. Uh, we used uh -huh. to detassel seed corn. One of the great rites of passage of the American Midwest. Yes, yes. For those who don't know, can, can you describe what detasseling is? Yeah, so seed corn has evolved over the years and it became the, a hybrid. So in the genetics of things, certain rows of corn, uh, the female rows, had to be detasseled in order for the pollination, the crossing, to, to go right. So that was a job for many young people in the rural communities of Iowa to work for the, the seed corn companies that, uh, that had certain plots of seed corn. Uh, so this means going out into those, into those endless fields there uh, and through the corn. I mean, I remember doing some work myself, not detasseling exactly, but it's, you get cut up, it's really hot and sweaty, and uh, there's a real sense of, of completion because you're moving down the row from one end to the other. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and as you say, it was, it was quite a rite of passage for, uh, for young people. I remember, uh, you know, people that were 13 and 14 years old, you know, going out, and that was their first job, and we'd get up before before dawn, and uh, I used to drive the bus, even back then, <laughs> to take the crews out to do uh, the detasseling, and uh, yeah, lots of stories. My uh, my brother met his 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 wife in the cornfields, <laughs> cornfield romance. There was a lot of that. The pollen path, we called it. <laughs> There was a, 
a, a funny memory was uh, this young fellow, I think he lied about his age to get his first job. This little fellow, called, we called him Twink. He was probably uh, four, foot four, four foot ten, and uh, he was the youngest of our crew and the smallest. And I remember we would wait at the end of the rows for everybody to come out, and then we'd make sure everybody was out before we started our next row. And Twink didn't come out. We were wondering where could Twink be, and uh, eventually we were concerned enough to that I went down the rows and to try to find where he was, and he was uh, he was up to his waist in in mud, oh, no. and uh, he couldn't pull himself out as one of those. <laughs> suction uh, his boots were down in the mud so wow. I had to wrestle Twink out of the mud and get him back to the end of the rows again <laughs> but we all love Twink he had such uh, such spunk and uh, <laughs> desire to work and yeah. of course many of us learned to work from uh, from those uh, from those rough mornings in the cornfields <laughs> yeah so where'd you go from there uh, so that was between college semesters. I was over at Marquette University in Milwaukee. Oh. And uh, I think in some ways that, that was a Jesuit education and and certainly gave me the, the rigors of academics and uh, uh, balanced with uh, a sense of social justice. So there were seeds of that. I remember getting involved with the Catholic Worker House in Milwaukee and working with uh, kids from North Division High School uh, doing tutoring and mm -hmm. so it was a um, it was a uh, you know a lot of a lot of book work but also a chance to get out into the community and that's really where I felt my education was coming alive was those interactions out into the community and I realized that maybe it's more than just about books mm -hmm. yeah so and the Jesuits had a big impact on you right you you were in the seminary for a while yeah so after I graduated from college then I went into what they call their novitiate and that was a time to kind of explore that as a vocation. Uh, I decided not to go ahead with, uh, you know, following that as a, as a life uh, calling. But um, it was a it was an amazing time, really, a novitiate. And again, it was kind of a um, uh, kind of a fundamental understanding of how service and hands-on learning can um, have a very powerful p impact on a young person. I remember in those. In those two years that I was in it, I was uh, a hospital orderly in a cancer ward. Um, I worked in a shelter, a soup kitchen. I worked in a camp for children with cancer. Um, I worked uh, on a farm that uh, Hmong Lao refugees were starting mm. to grow their own produce. And uh, I think one of the things that'll, that'll always be with me is a 30-day silent retreat which, uh, you know, it was really difficult. You know, there's a lot of squirming around and wondering why am I doing this, <laughs> trying to be silent for 30 days. But, uh, you know, I eventually settled into it, and it was very profound and mm -hmm. still kind of a reference point in my life. Yeah, I think that, that the, the, the religious vocations, right, have, have, you know, in at least traditional religious orders have suffered a lot. They've, they've really struggled for members in recent times. Um, but I do see in my own work with young people, people are, are having, still having that question of what do I do with my life, right. right? How can I integrate, you know, spiritual or cultural or moral values along with practical path to living? I'm wondering if that, you know, how, how you can reflect on that from your own experience and, and what you see going on with kid, youth, youth today. 
Yeah, so that really kind of, you know, lit my fire in terms of how do you integrate the community more into the classroom. I, f- I felt like from early on I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and so those early early experiences that I had myself became kind of the basis of realizing that how can you extend the walls of the classroom and how can you access the community in a way where you find these you know, natural teachers that are, you know, doing their thing, community leaders of sorts, uh, that can, you know, broaden the experience for the student. Um, So really, wherever I've taught, it felt like I was always trying to go out into the community and get to know it well enough, uh, establish a trust to make that conduit from the classroom out into the community. Yeah, so you've you've been a, you've been a classroom teacher, you've been a Waldorf teacher, you know, right through the grades, which is a great adventure on its own through mm-hmm. through the changes of the years. Um, but I think with the Bear Green Marble, you've you've really gone ahead and really taken school out of the classroom in in a dramatic way. Um, can you give us a description of of the Bear Green Marble and just, first of all describe describe the bus herself? Sure. Yeah, I mean that uh, the idea of how do you get uh, you know students out. You know, there, we walked all over town, you know, as a classroom, and then we begin to begin to say, well, how can we, how can we really be mobile? So <laughs> that was when I finished up the Waldorf uh, experience here, teaching at Pleasant Ridge. Then it, it became, um, you know, kind of a passion of mine to figure out how can I, how can I create this rolling classroom? And there was some examples of it before. You know, I'd heard about the Audubon Expedition Bus and how that evolved into, um, I think it was called the Educational Ex- Expedition Bus that Larkspur out in, out in Maine did with Marlboro College. And then um, I learned about the Green Tortoise out in San Francisco and what they were doing as kind of a rolling hostel, taking young people out into the national parks, up into Alaska, down into Mexico, Central America, with these buses that they converted uh, to be sleeper coaches. So everything was really contained in the bus, and so that was that was um, that was the spark that got me out to San Francisco. And then I worked for the Green Tortoise for three summers to mm-hmm. kind of to get, to get my uh, experience and how how can I do this, you know, learn from them. Um, so that was amazing, really. You know, I felt like I I was an usher for these people of all ages, really, to get on this bus and to take them into a place like Yosemite Park. You know, I read about John Muir and, you know, but it was just on paper. But rolling that bus out of San Francisco in the evening and then getting to this place where we would uh, park the bus for a, a couple hours of sleep. And then I, it was time so that we would roll the bus down into Yosemite Valley as the sun was rising. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, wake people up to this... Uh, this magic of you know the sunlight dancing on the granite face and then have breakfast along the Merced River and there was just this what I would guess is what John Muir experienced this joy of being out there and uh, to be so immersed in this beautiful natural cathedral and to uh, as an usher to to welcome people into it and to um, watch people just be amazed yeah, I think you know, or Henry David Thoreau, um, our our namesake here, 
you know, was part of a tradition that's really flourished through John Muir and, and many other people down to the present of, of really celebrating the North American natural landscape really as a spiritual experience, right? That's pretty different from a lot of what is in, in the European cultural traditions. Um, and and it's, it's as, as a person, as, as, as an educator working out of a bus, yeah, you have the way to curate that in, in a really powerful way, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. I've always kind of taken to the phrase, you know, a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. And, you know, how do I facilitate these experiences so that it really activates, it creates that spark in people that where they begin to understand themselves through these experiences out. It would, you know, Muir himself talked about uh, when he would go out for a walk, it was walking the landscape into him. It mm-hmm. was not that sense of, uh, of, you know, people catching the fire of, of these experiences and, and their passion being lit. Yeah. Um, I always understood experiential education is much more than just hands-on learning. It's that sense of creating a, 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 an experience where something is lit inside of them, something that they just begin to discover that uh, the learning is, is within them and it's evoked mm-hmm. or you know, instigated by what's outside of them. Yeah, a word that comes up a lot in in your materials is the word adventure. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what when you use that word, what do you mean, and how does that how does that relate to the to the project of service? Well, there, I think there's a a little quote or phrase that says, you know, uh, a venture is you know something that's planned and you go out and do it, and an adventure is something that happens that maybe you didn't plan on. <laughs> Uh, you know, challenge arise, problems arise, or, you know, what you didn't plan on uh, often, you know, creates that sense of adventure that, you know, makes the makes the trip uh, much more interesting, much more memorable. Right. That's, yeah, travel is, is especially good for that, right? That you, you encounter things like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you never know when the bus is going to break down <laughs> and who we might meet to uh, keep us keep us rolling down the road. <laughs> So you, the bus has a capacity of, of 18, is that right? Or Actually, it's 36. Oh, wow. Yeah, we can. We call it the sardine can bus. Uh, all the seats have been taken out. It's The interior has been converted so that everything can become a bed at night. So in, so, in some sense, it's kind of the tiny, the tiny house movement before that became a thing. <laughs> uh, you know, every square inch is, uh, is utilized. So you've got... Uh, bathrooms, kitchens. Yeah, the bus toilet is still in place. So the Greyhound bus toilet, kind of your typical bus, uh, back of the bus deal. And then um, the luggage racks, the parcel racks, are bunk beds. So we always say when people crawl up there, you you, you get a feeling of what it's like to be in a submarine. <laughs> and then uh, uh, there's a platform. There's platforms that fold down in the back and in the front that become these big buds big beds that, uh, you know, the kids affectionately know them, call them the, the cuddle puddles. <laughs> and then in the in the middle, there's dinette tables, and those convert into also bunk beds at night. So yeah, if, if, uh, if you can believe it, 36 people can, can get <laughs> fitted into all that. Micro College is recorded in the broadcast studios of WDRT Viroqua, 91.9 FM, Driftless Community Radio, on Main Street in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Thanks to Jim and all the folks at WDRT for the support of Thoreau College and the Micro College podcast. Well, great. So, so what are some of the places? What are uh, what are some some of the places you go with this with the bus and things that you do? 
So the bus can, can be chartered. Um, I've worked with groups before where they've had an idea of maybe where they want to go, and then we design the trip together. Um, we go, you know, we've gone to the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, we've gone out west to, to Moab. Uh, we've gone to the Badlands, out to Pine Ridge Reservation. Um, and then kind of the annual trek for me is the follow the birds migration down the flyway to, uh, to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And for the past four or five years, I've had, had it set up down there where um, I meet college groups, usually on their holiday or spring break. And then we, uh, we do a week of service uh, and kind of a cultural immersion down in southern Louisiana. So our service ranges from doing home rebuilds, you know, to areas that are affected by storms or disadvantaged populations doing home rebuilds like through Habitat Through Humanity. Um, and then most of our work is focused on uh, environmental injustice. And so we take up a, a lot of the work of wetland restoration. So we partner with other nonprofits down there mm -hmm. that are more on the ground and do maybe have the trees, the cypress trees to plant, or have um, you know the urban agriculture is another aspect that we connect to. You know how do people you know get a sense of growing their own food and understanding more about the the imbalances as far as you know healthy food distribution, especially in the inner city. So, as you mentioned, cultural immersion is a part of this. I mean, you know, that, that New Orleans area, southern Louisiana, is, is a really distinctive regional culture. Lots of, lots of uh, admixtures from different, different parts of the Caribbean and beyond. Um, and pretty different from places maybe that, that most American students are coming from, right? What, what sort of things do you do to, 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 to introduce them to that regional culture? Yeah, that's an exciting thing. Again, I just feel like the usher where I find these amazing people, you know, that represent, you know, that kind of gumbo pot, if you will, of uh, various cultures and traditions of uh, southern Louisiana. So, for example, you know, we, we often greet student groups on Sunday, and then we go to a place called Congo Square, which is a, a national park memorial, and it's the place where... Um, Slaves, a certain uh, house servant slave in New Orleans was sometimes granted uh, what you might think of as free time uh, on a Sunday afternoon where they would go on their own to this place called Congo Square. And they'd often meet up with uh, the local Indian tribes and they would have this kind of exchange uh, of goods and merriment um, and the the slaves were allowed to practice their old African rhythms, which was unheard of, really, in, in many slavery experiences, uh, you know, on plantations and whatnot. So they were allowed to, uh, to bring their drums in, uh, and they would drum on Sunday afternoons, and un it was under these beautiful live oak trees. Uh, and these, these dan this dancing, in a sense, is what led to, really, uh, the birthplace of American music. If you think of it as a as a tree that grew out of Congo Square, um, branches including jazz and blues and gospel and you know on down the line into rap and hip hop and rock and roll and country music has even have it has its roots in the blues. So so much of of American music really comes from that plot, and it's a it's a sacred place, 
and the cultural preservers of New Orleans uh, gather there still uh, on Sunday afternoons at 2 o'clock and do these drumming circles. So it's a thrill to bring students there, and I know the folks uh, uh, love to have them come, and so the, the leaders of those drum circles uh, you know, share with the students their understanding of, of that place and the importance of it in the culture of New Orleans and really the whole country. Um, and so then the students get worked into uh, to, uh, drumming on the drums mm -hmm. and to, uh, to get up and dance. And so I can't <laughs> think of a better welcome to uh, that part of the country than to, to have that experience to start. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, are there ever any, you know, any challenges or hiccups or you know, introducing, bringing people into a new you know, culture or to cross-cultural boundaries, especially when you're, you know, as you're doing some you know, service work, situations of poverty, things like that? Is that, is that ever, ever an issue, or, or how do you prepare people for that, for, for interacting with people of a different culture and different kind of social class? Yeah, I think most of the students understand that they're, that they're there to serve, and so it's it's kind of a part of the the learning to understand what is it to be of service and for a long time I think service was equated with charity you know you go and you are the haves and you give to the have-nots and there might not be much interaction there might not be, be much listening of the server to those that they're serving uh, it's more of a oh I've done my act of charity for the year but um, what we try to encourage is really the deeper learning that goes with service and to understand that the level of our compassion really isn't measured by what we do for the people that may be on the margins. It's our, it's our capacity to open our hearts enough that we can develop a relationship, to be in kinship with those people, and to understand that none of us are free until we're all free. Um, and so that's the basis of really kind of going from that place of charity to a place of listening, to hearing their stories, to understanding on a deeper level really what they're going through and what they have gone through, and really to understand, you know, why 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 they are there these inequalities and these social justice issues. Yeah, it seems like an important part of what you do is is not you know, there's there's planting trees, there's other sorts of physical work, but there's also time built in to to listen to people's stories, to meet the to people who can yeah talk about their lives about whatever you know, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly, and that's so much an important part of it, you know. And so from Congo Square, we go out and we do a cooking class with you know a local fellow in the neighborhood that teaches us how to jump, do make up jambalaya, and you know and in the cooking, you know, there's this recipe that they go with, follow from heart, but with that recipe, like any good, you know, kitchen work, there's these stories that come up. And so, you know, that you feel, you know, what it is to make something by understanding these stories and, you know, the, the, you taste it in the end. Yeah. And then there's the, you know, the joy of making up this big batch of jambalaya, for example, and then opening the door to anybody that's passing by, which is kind of a wonderful tradition that goes with New Orleans, too, where strangers are meeting friends and people that are walking down the streets are invited into your house to to experience the joy of a stranger becoming friend, but just sitting down and, you know, 
breaking jambalaya together, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really engaging all of the senses there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, it's just such a spontaneous thing because, you know, it's, it's like we make this jambalaya, but then we walk down the street a couple houses and we meet uh, Daryl Montana, for example, who's one of the, the famous Mardi Gras Indians, and he invites us into his house and he explains to us the, the family tradition he has of, of making Mardi Gras Indian costumes and, and masking and how, you know, that's an important part of the identity of that culture too, is to have that ability to uh, transport themselves into Indians, you know, this other character, which kind of helps, I think, free them of their own, you know, oppression by being something else and this dancing tradition and the, the beauty and glamour of these costumes. And, you know, they, they, they talk about this competition they have with other Indian tribes in the city on Mardi Gras morning and killing them dead with needle and thread. They talk about <laughs> these costumes are worked on by their families for you know, I think they talk about thousands of hours that go into the beading and the feather work, and it's just, it's an amazing sense of color and and really um, that irrepressible joy that they have to not be not be oppressed, to, to rise above that and to find that place of, of celebration and dance. Yeah. So who, who are the students who sign up to do these, and, and what are they, what's your sense of what they're seeking? Yeah, that can be, that can vary. Um, you know, I work a lot with, uh, for example, Ohio State University and um, their students, you know, that come down are often really unsure what they're getting into. They might have signed up for something they really don't understand, or maybe they thought of New Orleans as being a, a great place to go party. And, and so, you know, they show up with different levels of expectation or understanding what they're really getting into. Um, I would characterize most of the students that come as as very, being very much on the the academic track of uh, you know a Big Ten university, and they're looking to build up their resume and you know show that they are doing some service work. But um, you know that I find like most of the time that peels away quickly, and it might be their first experience in an inner city doing service work. It might be their first experience being surrounded by African-American people. Um, but there's a, there's a trust, I think, that they come to, to, to realize that, wow, this is, this is a place where I've never, you know, been so moved. You know, they hear stories and they have these interactions with these amazing people and they learn about community leadership and what it is to be an active citizen and to listen to these stories, as we said before, uh, you know, to really kind of begin to understand, uh, you know, where these people are coming from and why we talk, why we have these issues that are, you know, uh, around social injustice and inequality. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, another term along with adventure that comes up in your on your website and other materials is the is the concept of the edge of your comfort zone, right? Learning starts at the edge of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, say more about that. Why why is that important to 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 push that boundary of of your comfort zone? Yeah, I think that's where you know that spark that I spoke of earlier um, ignites. You know that sense of this is where learning really begins. 
And again, a lot of these students are coming from, you know, the grind of book work and passing exams and, you know, getting good enough grades to go off to their graduate school ambitions or whatever. Uh, and this is a whole different kind of learning for them. And um, it, 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 it's just a sense of, uh, wow, you know, they go away from these weeks and they have a different understanding of who they are as well as, you know, the world they live in. Um, and it's beautiful to see, you know, and, and, you know, many relationships that have sprung from that where I keep in touch with these students and, you know, uh, a lot of times they recognize that as a real turning point in their life as far as, you know, how they approach education and how they understand that education is really, you know, can be self-driven and self-motivated by how you put these different pieces of learning together in your life. Yeah, this this has emerged as an important theme in Thoreau College and also in these podcast interviews that we've been doing that that often, you know, challenge the edge of your comfort zone, pushing those limits is really is an important part of the educational process, especially in this kind of transformative like zone that we're in. Um, often, you know, traditional education will, will push people's intellect, right? And do harder math problems, read harder books, you know, speak in public, things like that. Um, but also, you know, we've we've explored the idea of, of ex, you know, expeditionary learning, something that you've also been engaged in, taking people on camping trips and, and you know, out into the wilderness and things like that. Um, but also, it seems like you're, you're, you're pushing challenge in a few different directions, right? There's the cultural uh, immersions that you're talking about, but also just the, the physical closeness of people on the bus, right? Yeah, talk about that as a comfort zone, you know, how, and a lot of these students, you know, do remark on that, like, how could I be crazy enough to sign up for a trip where I have to be, you know, shoulder to shoulder with these people I don't even know, uh, living and sleeping and eating on this bus for a whole week. Uh, so yeah, de definitely, you know, and it's, it's almost like either you're part of this community or you're not. And so, you know, people cross over and realize, hey, it's fun to cook together and it's fun to sit down and eat together and enjoy this food and to invite, you know, other people in and to be part of our, our meals, our meal community. And uh, so, there, you know, I think for many of them, it's, it's maybe their first experience of really that sense of travel and how travel can you know, do a lot of things. It can help you meet new people, help you learn about a new area. And as Mark Twain would say, you know, travel is the, the biggest enemy of uh, bigotry and racism and whatnot because, you know, obviously you, you have to go into a place maybe where it's not familiar to you and maybe you're not comfortable, but you, you begin to hear these, meet people and hear their stories and build the trust and understand you know, different viewpoints, different uh, places that people come from. The Driftless Folk School, located in the beautiful rolling hills and valleys of southwest Wisconsin, is a community of lifelong learners dedicated to cultivating personal and cultural resilience through hands-on educational experiences. The Driftless Folk School offers classes in agriculture, land stewardship, natural history, folk arts and crafts, herbalism, wilderness skills, and more. For further information on the Driftless Folk School, visit us at driftlessfolkschool.org on the World Wide Web. You've been an educator, Steve, for many for several decades now. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any observations about how youth culture, young people have have changed um, over time. 
Is there is there differences in what people are, what young people are interested in, what they're, what's challenging or easy for them that you've seen? Yeah, I think, you know, as experiential education has become more of a term uh, in mainstream ag- ag- in mainstream education, uh, the idea of well, maybe there is something more than just you know reading books and passing exams. Um, I think that's much more uh, mainstream now than it was when I was you know starting out in uh, secondary education. And certainly, you know, high school there really wasn't wasn't any real theme of e- or emphasis on that at all. So the students you're working with are are in general self-selected, right? They're choosing to do this as opposed to yes going to Cancun or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a there's a sampling bias in there, maybe. But I, I was reading recently um, an article by a Waldorf high school teacher in which she described after decades of teaching, you know, a difference that he was seeing, which was you know when he started teaching, the typical you kind of trouble you might have or the, the challenge you would have with a, with, a, with a teenager, high school student, would be they would say, I won't. I won't do that. Whereas today, students are much more likely to say, I can't. Uh, yeah. That's something that resonates with you. Have you seen that? Yeah, and I don't know that I see it because, as you say, you know, these students that join the, the Mary Green Marvel are, are kind of Understanding that they're they're stepping out of their comfort zone and they're, they're taking an adventure and they are choosing that, and you know I don't know that I've tapped into this as much as I want, but I but I really really strive to to find those students that are reluctant, and you know maybe there's forces in their life that that really keep them from stepping out of this bubble, if you will, um, but yeah that's. I think that's a dynamic place where, where um, I'm certainly feeling, uh, you know, the calling to try to, to reach out to those groups. And as I, as I build up this adventure um, service learning um, bus and really a, a educational initiative, I feel like that's, that's really where the work is for me is to, to find these partnerships with maybe other youth organizations and um, work with those youth organizations to help students get get out of their bubbles, get out of their you know their their insular lives, and to to find that you know learning is is much much more broader than maybe they think. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so I wonder if you could talk about your your other project here, Sitting Pretty Farm, um, which is as I mentioned was a place we had some interaction with this summer, a beautiful spot. Can you can you say what what's what's this all about? You know, the, the nonprofit that I started that includes the Mary Green Marvel, uh, you know, had this this mission of adventure and service learning that we referred to. Um, and then it became it became an interest that what else can we do, you know, to do community outreach within uh, the Baroqua Vernon County region here. Uh, and so uh, a certain pandemic came along <laughs> and uh, kind of shut down the Mary Green Mar- Marvel for you know a good two years, and so I, you know, I pondered what can I do, you know, in this transition time, and so that became kind of the the opportunity to build up Sitting Pretty Farm, and the idea was to, you know, create these cabins that would be on Airbnb, and that that would be a funding stream where. 100% of those Airbnb funds would go into helping, um, you know, our our uh, Mary Green Marvel trips, and to try to find students that couldn't afford 
to do those trips and to provide financial aid for those trips as well as our summer camps. So um, we started building, we brought in one tiny house and then we found a, a, a mobile home frame and built up another tiny house on that. And then with the help of the Amish neighbors, we built up a house. Um, and then uh, we decided we wanted to build some kind of a community center. Uh, and it made sense to have some a community kitchen to go with it. And um, the idea was to make a, a space where the, the kitchen would be big enough to be a commercial kitchen where community could come in and, and use it for like fundraisers, um, use it to process food, to add value to producers' work, um, and to, to have kind of a, a community gathering place. So uh, with the help, again, of my Amish, I call them my Amish homies, my neighbors. <laughs> yeah, just uh, for those who haven't been there, this, this is really right in the heart of Amish country. Next door is Amish schoolhouse and a couple of farms, and this is, yeah, right right up and close to, yeah. to, the, to the Amish folk. Yeah, so they've been a big help in helping me build these buildings. And uh, um, initially, the the kitchen was going to be small, but again, we <laughs> we had time, and the resources were coming in with the Airbnb funding to build a bigger building. And so, uh, we ended up be having what we call the party barn. So it includes the the commercial community kitchen, and then a loft up above where people can uh, set up tables and do a staff retreat. Big windows out to the western horizon to watch the sun go down, the rolling hill country of the Driftless. I like to say I can see all the way back home, which is across the ridges over to Iowa. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, um, and then the, the, you know, the question again, this has all been very kind of organic and how it's evolved. But the question was, uh, how can we do community outreach? How can we, you know, get, get, give back to the community? Um, and so, you know, uh, the, this community again and just kind of amazes me and all that's going on and all all the ways that there can be these collaborations so I found you know a, a host of other nonprofits in the area and proposed the idea that why don't we create goodwill and financial help for for each other by um, doing these wood-fired pizza nights with live music and so I reached out to a variety of nonprofits, uh, Driftless Folk School and Thoreau College among them, and proposed the idea that if you can send some of your volunteers uh, from your organization and spread the word through your network, let's do wood-fired pizza on Friday nights and have live music and give people a chance to gather again after this pandemic and uh, bring the community together and, you know, enjoy the magic of summer evenings on a ridgetop. So that's that's kind of how it came to be, and here we are, you know, toward the end of summer, and uh, I can't say how heartwarming it's been to, um, you know, create these bridges out into the community and find uh, the goodwill of so many good people and, um, you know, to, to have this kind of mutual fundraising aspect, but more I think it's it's the wealth of goodwill and good food and the merriment of music and again really feeling so blessed to have so many local musicians who again you know just picking up the phone and reaching out to them it was pretty really really pretty easy to put together a schedule 
of nonprofits and uh, local musicians to make these Friday nights uh, be uh, be fun events. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was um, for those of us who never have had the good fortune to go on a Mary Green Marble trip or one of your canoe trips or been in one of your classes somewhere else. It did feel like a, we got got a little taste of the curation that you do so well. You know, interesting people and and high quality culture and music and excellent food and you know, there's an atmosphere where something magic happens. There, there where community happens and where you know some some transformation in in meeting of people. Yeah, Every exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know that there's a set recipe for that. But uh, again, I just feel um, pretty overwhelmed and blessed to be in this community where that can happen uh, so easily. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm wondering, you know, back to your the Mary Green Marvel experiences, and, and maybe this is connected with Sitting Pretty as well, is, you know, uh, I know from people who have done our programs at Thoreau College, people who, who have deep experiences with, you know, adventure, expeditionary learning programs like Knowles and Outward Bound, a certain proportion of those people will say, gosh, I want to do more of that, right? Mm -hmm. Or like that has changed my life to the degree that I want to, you know, that I want to make this my profession or, or just to do it for a longer period of time. And I'm wondering if you encounter students like this, you know, coming out of your trips and, and if so, what, what do you advise them or what, where do you send them? Yeah, when we wrap up our closing circle, like for our New Orleans service weeks, um, you know, I often sit under one of those big live oak trees. It's some people don't know how old they are. They say they could be over a thousand years old, and so it's just a perfect place to to kind of feel, you know, what comes next, and to to be rooted in this continuum of, you know, service really and service learning, and to know that there's been this giving and this these people that have opened their hearts, you know, to, to the learning that goes with, with getting out and taking up the adventure and growing ourselves through giving back. Um, and I often put up a, a chart that says, here's all these things you can be, you can go out and do, <laughs> you know, and it varies from, you know, Peace Corps to AmeriCorps to Food Corps to, um, you know, all the organizations really uh, worldwide, uh, uh, nationwide, as well as in their own backyard, that they can stay engaged and to, to understand kind of the magic that goes with that ability to say, you know, it is my problem instead of saying, oh, it's someone else's problem, it's not my problem, when we can say that you know, these struggles, these injustices, these community needs that are all around us no matter where we live are part of our experience and part of, you know, our own, our own quest for freedom that, um, that, that you know, just sparks that, in, that automatic engagement where, yes, I am interested and yes, I care and yes, this is a problem. And then it's... I think part of the magic of that is that it's not such a oh oppressive thing and a heavy thing and you know there's all these problems of the world and there's so much greed and ignorance and all these people are so divided and you know it's such a struggle that the struggle seems a little lighter when you can form your your group and find your people and you know uh, engage in that service, engage in that problem solving, engage in that, that community activism together. 
and you know finding ways to to meet all sorts of people and doing so and how that brings the community together yeah that, i think that's you give, give a picture there of 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 action of, of something to do because i would say my observation as an educator over over you know a number of years is that I do see more hopelessness and despair in young people and people in general, of course, mm -hmm. but you know, especially sensible in people who are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, who are looking out at the environmental situation, at the political situation, at just the cultural situation and, and feeling hopelessness. Yes. Right? And uh, yeah, I think that that is that something that you, you've seen in, in students come along? Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that the medicine really is in, in Finding a way to care and finding that your caring does matter, and and that that that, that how you're caring can connect into into a community, and you meet you meet the people that want to care with you. Um, I mean, that's really that's really how we realize it's it's not something we have to do by ourselves, but we find that kind of the joy of crew. I call it the joy of crew, the joy of. That's a Mardi Gras word, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of that uh, comes from just he hearing the stories and understanding that culture of New Orleans. I mean, they've been they've been fighting the odds for a long time. Whether it's you know the, the social injustices, the inequalities, or the, you know just the environmental plight down there, yeah. flooding and uh, all the all the things they're up against. Yeah, it's not just you know. Just not just sweat and uh, and hard work. It's also celebration and good food and, and music as well. Yeah, we can't lose touch. You know that this service is, isn't meant to be drudgery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me too. The you know um, we got the bus rolling again with our summer camps, and we took a group of high school age students up to Lake Superior, and we had a variety of experiences up there from canoeing the white water on the Brule to sea kayaking on Lake Superior into the sea caves, um, doing service work for a Finnish heritage center, uh, uh, doing an art class with a local artist. And uh, uh, the last night we were there, we met up with um, a native elder, um, Marvin Defoe, from the Red Cliff Band of uh, Ojibwe. And, uh, he sat with us. He joined us for our for our supper, and uh, we sat on the shoreline there at Lake Superior. And uh, uh, it was a magical sunset. The colors were hard to hard to describe, and a rainbow came. And he um, he he conveyed to us that we're we're going through all these changes. And you know, he said specifically these this climate change that we're we're dealing with. And he, um, he said he's, his, even his dad and the generation before started seeing it in the woods and was concerned, you know, what his son Marvin, who's now well into his 60s, would be, would be facing. Uh, and Marvin uh, really just called us to, to our hearts and to know that, you know, the answers to our questions and the answers to our struggles really lie within our own hearts and the love that we have to be kind and to be decent and to, to con continue on with the faith that, that love wins. And uh, as if on cue, you know, the, that sunset just kept getting more beautiful. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of like the rainbow was a promise to us in the sky, you know, to, to heed, heed this message that's been passed on for people struggling for generations and generations to, 
you know, have faith in the love that you have to give. Thoreau College is a leader in an emergent movement dedicated to the renewal and revitalization of higher education through the creation of new, humanly scaled institutions with holistic curricula known as micro-colleges. Thoreau College, higher education for the whole human being. Yeah, that, that story also, you know, underlines, I think, something that you do, you know, through your trips and something you do in your own person, which is introduce, connect young people with, with elders, right, with, with people who can carry that long view. And in the case of, you know, the Ojibwe have this powerful narrative over many generations, the Seven Fires prophecy that I think is important, people should know about. Um, but, but I think I, I, just this summer, you know, the Thoreau volunteers who worked with you, and I know your, your, your Waller School students, I mean, really, really, you know, view you as, as, a, as a touchstone, as a, as a real, you know, as, as a model of service and life of service. And, um, and we've, we've heard that throughout these interviews on the podcast also, when people reflect back to their, their early adulthood, 18, 19, 20 years old, what comes up very frequently is that one person or two, like, teachers, uh, maybe it's a class teacher, a professor, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a, it's a person in their community, but that, that individual they, they, they had some, some connection with. And you clearly are, have been that for a number of people. Um, and I'm wondering mm. if, if, yeah, how, you know, if we're, if we're observing that uh, as a pattern, uh, thinking about creating programs like Thoreau College, um, what, what can we learn from that? How do we create scenarios for those type of relationships to, to flourish between students and mentor, teacher, elder figures? Yeah, again, I think it's a very organic thing for each individual and as a collective, you know, how that comes together and how there's that interface with whatever community you're in. And those, those people are always there. Those teachers are waiting to be asked. Uh, so many people are waiting to be asked, what, what's your story? Tell, tell me about your life. Um, one of the things that we did when I was teaching at Pleasant Ridge was every Friday we'd go down to the, the assisted living, the elder care here in town, and we'd develop these relationships with the elders there o over a school year. And, uh, you know, the students got to know these people and there was a relationship there that developed that was uh, uh, one of trust over time to tell for the elders to tell their stories that they that they felt I think that they were on a ground where the students really did care and that they showed up every week uh, to show them that they cared and in that caring you know there was that story to be told and to be cherished and uh, yeah, that's just a, those relationships. I think are are are, are what come of of the learning uh, by just showing up. Yeah, that's yeah. It's again, creating the space and the time for it. Yes, you know, many 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 systems in our society involve the checking off of checklists of of moving things very quickly, putting things in boxes. But you need to create the space for those conversations. Would be my observation. Yes. Organically, right? As you say, like, you can't quite say where it's going to go, but right. there's a little bit of trust in that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, in my, in my work with the Native community, too, when I taught in Michigan on the, on the reservation, uh, understandably so, the, the Native people were very wary of a white teacher coming onto the reservation. Hold up, were your students there? They ranged. Uh, it was it was a kind of a community education center. Uh -huh. So they ranged from doing summer school with kids to uh, to doing adult 
learning, uh, you know, of schools, of, uh, of adults coming back to try to finish their high school diploma. But uh, yeah, that was very much an example of really having to work on trust and uh, uh, show, showing that, that I was there for more than just, you know, to check in at 8 o'clock and check out at 4 o'clock. It was, uh, you know, when, I, when they saw that I cared enough to come and visit and be a part of their community, uh, you know, that, that trust slowly but surely built. And for me, you know, maybe I gave, it gave something in my teaching there, but I gained, gained so much, which is that old adage, you know, when you give, you receive in multiple ways. Um, but yeah, then uh, one of the native uh, elders took me um, under his wing and kind of taught me the, the ways of fasting and doing uh, what sometimes is called the vision quest. So that that uh, four days out in the woods uh, continued to be, or continues again like the 30-day silent retreat that I had as a Jesuit to be a real reference point. And it, it's something that I feel, you know, was, was uh, intimidating to do it, uh, scary. Uh, but once I had done it and had that trust of myself fasting in the woods, it became a you know a, be- a beautiful spiritual kind of tradition for me and that I continue to return to and when I was teaching at Pleasant Ridge I always did it before I started teaching because I felt like I needed it to to ground and center myself and to to have that kind of fortress inside of myself <laughs> spiritual fortress to uh, have the resources to deal with uh, you know the children and uh, the most graceful way I could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I think that's something that 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 people that I recognize, and I think people, you know, students recognize in in you, and I think in in great teachers in general is is that there's a connection between vocation, a spiritual calling, and that work, right? That work of developing that inner space to to be to be who you need to be for to 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 do that calling, right? right. Yeah. You know, I think good teachers have charm and charisma, uh, but if it's not grounded in something, you know, of spiritual practice, something of, uh, you know, where they understand uh, kind of the self-surrender that goes with being filled up with something beyond themselves to really be an inspired teacher. Uh, And it's not just teaching, too, right? That's, I think, great farmers great craftspeople, great healers, right, are, are really working out of the same space. Yeah, that's I think it's the humility to, to be open to being filled with, you know, whatever spiritual force you might be subscribing to. <laughs> Beautiful. Steve, I think that's, that's a great place to leave it. So thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Great to be here, and good luck with your work at Thoreau College and Driftless Folk School. <laughs>